0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Father, we give you thanks for gathering us here. Put us before you to put us beneath your word together, and so together we ask you: Will you please teach us and make us not just individuals, but make us a church that hears and embodies what what's in this passage? Would you make us a a collection of laborers and a laboring church, people who? Who see you? Who love you? Who want to follow you and are useful to you as as a whole entity? You shape us and create a culture here and uh, an individual mindset, but also a corporate culture that is um, that is captured by what this passage is about and moved by it and is useful in these ways. In a lot of ways, well, that's a big request. So we ask you to. Uh, to take it piece by piece in your timing and the ways that that you know it best, but will you work that out and will you build us up? Use us in your kingdom advancement. It would be a joy for us, but it would particularly be good for others and an honor to your name. So that's what I ask. Will you do that work beginning even this morning? Build your church, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Last week as we finished Matthew chapter 9, we noted that we were at a pivot point in this book. Back in chapter 4, Jesus had called to himself a a few different men, called them to come be followers of his as his disciples, saying that he would then make them fishers of men. And then what followed for several chapters was a, a lot about what it means to be a follower of Jesus as a disciple, what disciples are like, what the kingdom is like, what what, what the king is like, who he is, a number of chapters about that. And then now we come to this pivot where Jesus turns to talk to his disciples about what it means to be fishers of men. Or, to use last week's passage as language, laborers in God's harvest. Working to gather in a harvest of people to God, like, like gathering in sheep who are wandering and are straying in various ways, gathering in sheep back under the care and authority of the good shepherd. Something very needed in Jesus 's eyes because he looks out and he sees the people all around, the crowds all around him, person after person, mass after mass, he sees them all as harassed and helpless, it says, like sheep without a shepherd. He saw that and had compassion on them, a deep internal feeling that then moved him to act, to minister to them, and that's what he calls us, his people to be and do also have compassion on the people around us, and to act for their good, to act so as to bring them to the shepherd that they need. First, by praying for more laborers that have that kind of heart, that was last week's passage, and then second, as we'll see today in the beginning of chapter 10, second, to kind of act as answers to our own prayer, to be those laborers with that kind of heart going out to the fields every Christian is supposed to do that every one of us some in, in different ways we're, we're going to have different, different places where we live different ways that we serve some of us will be what we've called capital M ministers people gifted and set apart to be committed to it more in a full time way and then others will be all the rest of us will be lowercase m ministering, laboring in one way or another but all of us are a part of this we act to serve after prayer, but not just prayer. We act to serve. It's laborers in the harvest. It's His work. We're going to be doing it, but it's done through us. It's Him doing it through us. And so it really is a work that is dependent on Jesus all the way through. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. After prayer. What does it look like to be a Jesus-dependent, a Christ-dependent laborer for him? That's beginning in Matthew 10, verse 1 and following. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 and then draw out three observations from the passage. 10, beginning in verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his wages, his food, his sustenance. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, Let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Matthew chapter 10. So three observations. Here's the first. Christian ministry looks to Christ for its power and its kingdom purpose. Christian ministry looks to Christ for its power and kingdom purpose. Verse 1 says that Jesus called to him his 12 disciples. And the language hints at the fact that they, they were already somehow or another identified from from the rest of the, the disciples, these 12, they're the ones called the apostles in the next verse, ones who had been eyewitnesses of him had been with him from the beginning, requirements as we later find out to, to be an apostle. They're named there in verses 2 to 4, and those are the 12 that he sent out in verse 5. And he called that group forward. And it says, he gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal every affliction and every disease. So notice that. He calls them to himself and gives them authority. That's been the main issue for chapters 8 and 9 now, the authority of Jesus. We've just been looking at a whole bunch of, of him acting in power to show, to establish that he's the king as he acts to, to show everything answers to him, displays his authority. And now he delegates that same authority to these ones so that they will do the same thing in his name. So they aren't free to make this up as they go along. They aren't free to go out amongst people and to discern what they think compassion might look like, what the people might actually need, and then do that. He's given them his authority to do his work. He tells them what that is, to spread the word of and evidence of the king and the kingdom. The kingdom is here and evidence to show you that the king is here. Watch. So he sends them out to do exactly that, not among the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Don't go there. But go instead to the lost sheep of Israel, and that that reference to the sheep there it kind of reminds us. Oh yeah, the passage just before he was talking about sheep, so this is coming from right out of that compassionate looking at people. Compassion is driving this. That's why he's sending them out. He wants to gather in sheep. Christ's compassion sits behind this. But then you might ask, like, if if it's compassion behind this, then why not the Samaritans and the Gentiles? I mean, surely they need him too. Why not them? Well, because of where we are in the flow of this whole story. Of course, remember, by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to send his disciples to all the nations. So he will send his people to everybody. But where we are right now, there's, there's a lot that has to change first. This is the very first time that he sent out his people by themselves. And the rest of the scriptures show us that at this point, there is still a lot of hostility and prejudice amongst his disciples against the Samaritans and the Gentiles. They're not ready for that. So like any good parent or coach, starting a new challenging task, Jesus starts small, on familiar territory. He says to them, just right around here, to these people with whom you have a lot in common. And as you're going, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They'll know what that means. They get that language. That, that's their lingo. So that, that'll register for them. And they'll also know what evidence would, would prove that claim. They're going to be knowing what to look for, some sort of a follow-up on that that's going to give weight to you. They'll, they'll know what to look for. And so, then do those things in my name, with my authority, show them the evidence. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. In other words, do chapters 8 and 9 again. That's the same stuff from chapters 8 and 9. I want you to do, I'm giving you my authority to do the same things in front of all these people. They didn't all see all this the first time around. Because I was only in one place. So that not everybody saw everything, but they all need to see all that. They need to hear the message and see the evidence that supports the fact that I am who I say I am. So go. He makes them as much like him as possible and tells them to go do what he was doing. My people, on my mission, with my authority, in my name, from my sort of compassion... To gather in sheep that would come under my shepherding into my kingdom of shalom. That's what he says. That's Christian ministry. Of any and every sort. That's Christian ministry. The scope will expand later. As Jesus sends out not just 12, but 72, and then everybody to everywhere. And the scope will expand as, as, as time goes on. People become Christians and churches are established and Christians live in certain communities and the ministry is going to expand to reflect that reality. And the message is going to expand too as time goes on because they're going to start talking to people who don't know what kingdom of heaven means and they're going to have to explain what we mean by that and how one comes into it and who this Jesus person is and what Messiah means. They have to explain all that and they have to talk about the cross and the resurrection that's at the heart of it all. We're not just talking about a king. We're talking about actually a, a cross and atonement and forgiveness. That's how you enter into the kingdom. But none of that's here because those things haven't happened yet. So the message will expand as time goes on. And also the method of spreading the message will expand. We'll use books and websites and pulpit preaching also. Things are going to change. There will be miracles still, but not exactly these ones and not exactly in the same volume as here. Remember, these miracles are messages. They're statements. They're statements spoken in a context in which the people who, who watch them have an expectation. When Messiah comes, he is going to be one who dismisses all evil and controls all nature to make it safe for us and actually gives life to people and cleanses us so we can have communion with God. So cleansing lepers and raising the dead and casting out demons speaks. This that you're looking for, here's the answer. But when we get into contexts in which those aren't the questions being asked, those answers wouldn't matter. So the types of miracles will change. Are there miracles done? I think there are still miracles done today. Yes, I still believe in miracles. But not of the same sort and the same volume. The methods are going to change as time goes on. In fact, everything changes. The scope changes. The actual content spoken changes. The method of communicating it, that changes. But what remains behind all those time and place details that, that expand as time and place expands, what remains behind all that is the point for us this morning. Don't miss this. The point is that Jesus empowers his disciples to further spread word and evidence that the word is true, to further spread word of the kingdom that's come in Jesus' and that we can embrace him by faith. That's the point. That's ministry. He did that personally in chapters 8 and 9, and now he equips his people in chapter 10 to go do that still. He's going to do it through them, but we're actually going to have to engage with doing something. That's what we're about. Sent into the harvest to connect people to the King. I suppose, that may seem sort of obvious. But I think where it's helpful for us is not only in declaring what it is, but also in declaring what isn't. Everything else that I didn't say isn't Christian ministry, isn't laboring in the harvest. And this, I think, is helpful, although, as I've talked about this and written this, you're going to have to listen carefully because it's going to sound like I'm, I'm dismissing something that I do not want to dismiss. I just need to put in its right place. And this is, I think, the helpful part, is seeing the good thing that needs to be put in its right place. So listen closely. What I'm getting at here is that when you realize that all that I just said, that's that's Christian ministry and everything else that I said is not, what that means, for an example, is we are not sent on a political mission. We are not sent on an environmental mission, nor an economic, nor a medical, nor a social services mission, not an education mission. So I'm, so I'm doesn't, doesn't look like I'm throwing out all those things, all those things are wrong, it's not what we about? No, I'm not. I want to put those things in their right place. Any one of those, probably all of those for us, are things that God has gifted and called you into as your vocation, voca, vaca, call, his voice has called you into those things. And we should be doing those things. Any one of us in different ways. But the key point here, we engage in those things as our callings and God may use us in them to do good to the world, but Christian ministry is not just doing good to the world. This is the key. Those things, as doing good to the world, that may very well be the perfect context in which you then engage in Christian labor, Christian ministry. We should be doing all those things as a way of loving others, but the key to seeing this is that what that does, those contexts in which we do good to the world, in which we love others, that creates the context for what we've called bread and butter evangelism but it's not itself the bread and butter evangelism. It creates the context in which plain old, ordinary, very common bread and butter evangelism, as I'm doing what God has called me to do, I'm doing good to the world, I'm loving other people, in that context, I may find opportunity to to explain the reason for the hope that's within me. The explaining of the reason for the hope that's in me, that's the ministry. See the difference? Important difference here. And important because I think a lot of us, a lot of us, because that part involves a little bit more effort, a little bit harder, a lot of us, and I don't mean you, I mean us, that includes me, a lot of us want to think of this doing good as Christian ministry, and it is a blessing to people. It is loving them. But it creates the context. It's the God-designed context so that as I'm living there, I may have opportunity when persecuted to say, here's where my hope comes from. That's first. That's Peter. Or when praised and thanked, I may have opportunity to redirect them. That, that's not in me. Anything good you find in me is actually the grace of Jesus coming through me to you. So I, don't, I, I give reason in hardship, and I give reason in prosperity and blessing. The context creates the spot in which God means for us to labor in the harvest. That's, that's the harvest field. Really important to see that. Christian laborers who are actually sent and who are actually embracing their sending, who are living out, this is kind of lingo these days, who are living out on mission. I don't don't like that lingo because it conflates things, but we use it so who are living in the field on mission, are doing what God has called them to do in their, in their job or being a student or a neighbor or whatever, but you're there and you're thinking and you're looking and you're praying for the opportunity to declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand here and Jesus is the king and you can know him by faith. So, an example. Suppose you're a farmer, and I picked this because I don't think anybody in the church is a farmer. Don't think. Suppose you're a farmer. God has called you to be a farmer. And amen? Who eats without farmers? You know, we need, we need farmers. And so that's a way that God has called you to love the world and to, to pass his goodness into the world. And as you do that, paying a just wage to everyone who works for you, and not destroying the environment by dumping on loads and loads and loads of unnecessary chemicals, and campaigning and engaging in, in, a, in a, a good way in, the, in your community with whatever issues come along. If you get involved in the school issues, you're, you're a part of that community. Doing those things in a good and right and just way is not itself faithful to this passage, not yet. When you do those things and then are thinking, Matthew, the end of nine, calls me to be labor in the harvest, and here's what 10 tells me about that. When you do those things, you may find opportunity when the rains don't come. What do you do with that? Do you declare my hope is in the Lord? There's a kingdom in which which my mind is set on something else. What do you do when the neighbor cuts off the water supply that was irrigating part of your fields? How do you you respond to that person? Do you explain when you pay a just wage, I'm not doing this because the law says I'm supposed to, but because I've received freely and I want to freely give. Let me tell you about that. The context is not the same as the ministry. And so what this is doing is it's putting in front of us, maybe, at least in front of me, maybe the rest of us, a little bit of a, oh, that's kind of what I was afraid of. I'm going to have to talk to people about Jesus. I was hoping I could just do a really good job at my job and call that good. I was misunderstanding all this time or misinterpreting all that bread-and-butter evangelism stuff. I'm doing good to the world, and I thought that was good enough. Nope, that's the, bright, that's the proper beginning. You can't make stuff happen. You can't make conversations happen. But you're looking for them and you're praying for them. And you're, you're looking for the opportunity. How can I say, here's the king in the kingdom and let me show you what that looks like. Maybe not with a miracle. Maybe with my behaviors, my responses. Because I'm trying to connect you to Jesus. Not just do financial or material good to you. You need Jesus. You're harassed and helpless sheep. He's a good shepherd. That's faithful laboring in the harvest. Yes, context, living faithful in the context, and then looking for how can I declare the kingdom is here? Jesus is the king, and you need him. So, as you think about that, and that gets kind of put in front of you, there probably is opportunity to examine yourself and see am I actually engaged in harvest work? Or am I just standing in the harvest field? There's a difference. The context is the field. Laboring. Are you actually laboring? Again, you can't make that happen, but are you looking and are you praying? Are you you leaning into it? And maybe if you find, probably if you find, if you're like me, you find, (sighs) nope, not like I should be. What did last week tell us should be step number one? Pray for the heart of compassion like Jesus. Pray to see the people that are all around you like he sees them. They're not just people who need food or medical care or social justice. They're people who need Jesus, and they have no idea where to find him. None. They don't know who he is. None. They might have the word. They might have some religious definition of him, but they don't know him, and you do. To have a heart that breaks over that like him, that's where we start. So you actually, you don't, if you find yourself behind the curve in, in chapter 10, you got to go back to chapter 9 and pray, Lord, change my heart. Maybe you need, maybe you need to pray. That's challenging. This isn't going to be easy. And to be honest, it is not going to be universally well-received. That's the third point. We're going to come to that in a moment. But before we come to that, Jesus has something else briefly to say. I've already touched on it a little bit, but his his instructions about ministry move into 8, 9, and 10, our second point. So Christian ministry is worthy of support, but it's not a business. Christian ministry is worthy of support, but it's not a business. And that's going to call ministers to depend on Jesus in some particular ways. So this is from 8, 9, 10, end of 8, 9, 10. And right on the heels of describing what and how we're ministering to others, what ministry looks like, he says. So that's what he has in his mind about what we've received. We receive ministry benefit. So you received ministry benefits and blessings of all sorts without paying. You might have heard this as, Freely you received means without paying, freely you received. And so give without charging, freely give. Whatever we've received, a Christian knows that it is all of grace. Everything we have. None of it's earned or deserved. No money bought it. No good works compelled God to give it. We are sinners deserving of nothing but wrath. That's that's the truth. And every Christian knows that. So, what he's doing here is not teaching you something, he's reminding you of something. And he's using it as, as an argument. Freely you've received, and you have received. You have received. It is helpful to remember this. God has backed up the dump truck of grace and lifted the bed and you've received. You didn't get in there with a shovel and throw it out. It got dumped on you. God in grace opened your eyes to see something of yourself as you actually are harassed and helpless, and something of Jesus as he actually is, gracious, compassionate, mighty to save. He showed you something of what the cross is like, what it does, how it's sufficient payment for sin, how it would, when trusted, would place us right with God, and he opened your eyes to see all that and then moved you to say yes to it. And so he brought you to life and gave you eternal life and then gave you the spirit to to live out life in you now while promising you untold blessings. There's a line of dump trucks waiting on the road to pull up next to you for eternity. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is yours and is coming at you all for free, freely. You have received And he's reminding you of that because then what he wants to say is, and then when you lift up your eyes and look at the harvest and see everybody who's got nothing. Nothing. you got to fight your way off from underneath the graves to get your head up to see over there they have nothing. And here comes another truck towards me. freely you've received. And they don't have anything and don't know where to find it and can't get it and can't internalize it and can't make it true. They are sheep lost, harassed and helpless and totally confused. Now, if you're hearing me say that this morning and and you think, I'm not a Christian, I'm one of the sheep, how insulting. He doesn't mean it to be insulting because he's, he's just trying to say, here's the truth, people don't know me and I'm a good shepherd. I'm not talking about an insult, I'm talking about a problem with an answer. There's an answer. There's an answer. His name is Jesus. But we, if you're a Christian, we've received that. We've, we've got it for free. And so freely give it to them. Give it away. You can't make change happen, but you can try to speak and try to show You can attempt to connect people to Jesus and offer it and teach it and show it and serve and pray and love whatever it is that's needed that might lift up Jesus in front of them and show the kingdom is here and connect them. Whatever that might be, give it without cost. This is not a business, it's not a commodity. There's no price tag on it. You don't sell it. Nobody who's received Christian ministry ever got charged for it. True Christian ministry. Never got charged for it. And no true Christian context ever walks down the aisle and says, how much do you make? That's how much you owe. No true Christian ministry ever walks down the aisle and says, how much do you make? That's what you owe pay. People do that. No true Christian ministry does. It's free. And yet, verses 9 and 10... Make very clear that the laborers are to go out into the harvest and they are not supposed to provide for themselves. Don't pack the stuff you'll need to support yourself and don't even bring any money to buy the stuff you'll need to support yourself because you're not supporting yourself. Nine and ten. You, the minister, are not going to support yourself. The people who resonate with the message and embrace it, they will support the ministers. And why would that be? End of verse 10. Four, because the laborer deserves his food, his sustenance. You might think of this quoted by Paul labor deserves his wages. Do it for free but you're going to get all the support you need from the people you're going to do it for free for. It kind of sounds maybe like a contradiction. What's, what's that, what does that mean? It means that the minister doesn't charge for services rendered, doesn't think of it like a business. So not only is it not a business, but the minister doesn't think of it like a business. Business folks think of, I have some commodity that in some way I can monetize, whether it's a good or a service. And so I want to maximize that. I want to somehow put something out there so that I get something for it. So not only do you not do that, you don't think of it like that. You think of, I just put this out there and leave it. Which is where the dependence on Christ comes in because the person who does that opens up the store and says everything on the shelf is free, is going to wonder, well, how am I going to pay the rent? i gotta, I got to depend on God for something here. i got to depend on him to meet this need. So that means it's, it's free. It's, it's given away. And then on the other hand, the minister is going to be taken care of all the earthly, worldly needs by those ministered to. That's what he says. So the minister can afford to do anything and everything for free, and that would include getting expenses reimbursed, getting childcare taken care of. For those who give full-time time time to this ministry, full-time compensation, so that the minister can afford to do this ministry, can afford to give it away for free. Now there's a point of information, I think, here, for Christians. And certainly we could move off on this and we could think about, I mean, we could think about us specifically here. And as I said, Paul does. But that's not what this passage is about. What this passage is about, this is not a message to congregations, this is a message to ministers about trust. Give it away for free. Can you you see the trust? I'm going to give it away for free, and I'm going to be walking around talking about Jesus with nothing in my backpack. And I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Okay. There's a dependence there on the Lord. That is... it's of a certain sort because it's of a certain context, but the point is he's speaking to ministers about giving things away in faith, trusting that I will cover you. How will I cover you? By moving them. and trust yourself to the Lord's care. We may be tempted to take care of ourselves and look for ways to, to capitalize on our skills, and boy, I bet you could have made a lot of money by raising the dead right? He's going to send them out with the power to raise the dead. How much would you pay to have that loved one raised back to life again or to have that disease cured? They've got, a, they've got something that's worth something there and he's saying, give it away for free and trust me. Trust him to provide. Faith in him is the appropriate response. You'll be taken care of. Trust me. So you trust me with, with what you are to do And you trust me with how you will be provided for. And you trust me with how people are going to respond to that. The last observation. Christian ministry, this is the third point. Christian ministry will be divisive along the crucial lines of eternal destiny. Christian ministry will be divisive along the crucial lines of eternal destiny. Verse 11, down through the end, Jesus is talking about the expected, varied responses of the ministry. So he's gone through this process here of describing how you're going to find a lodging. And, and understand, again, that fits in a context there where they're, they're going out and there's no other Christian, there's no Christian church, and there aren't any motel eights. You're going to go out and you live in a hospitality culture, this is, this is normal, actually, for them, to go knocking on the doors for a place to stay at night. But you're a little bit different than just the average traveler. You're a laborer in my harvest field. So when you go, you're looking for somebody who is a place to stay at a ministry base, a town and a house It's a ministry base. Are they good for that or not? Are they going to be good with that or not? How you find out? You knock. Say hi, need a place to stay. You extend your peace to them. You you peaceably say who you are and what you're about. This is not door to door aggression. This is a peaceable extension of I'm I'm here to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Jesus. Need a place to stay for a little while while I do that. And people are gonna go one of two ways shortly. Towns, he said, are going to go one of two ways shortly. They'll hear that and show themselves a worthy base, place worthwhile for you to stay and stop, and they'll receive you, or they won't. They will not receive you, they will reject you So skipping over the housing and the hospitality details, what's clear here is that there are going to be two different responses based on the message the ministers put forth, based on the offer of the kingdom come in Jesus. That's the issue. That's the issue that drops the big dividing line, the kingdom come in Jesus. That was divisive then, it's divisive now, and two sides quite apparently arise divided over Jesus. That's obvious. And then it gets kind of serious because it's not just here in the world you're going to find a division. People are going to like you or not. What I'm talking about is a divide that's not just in the world. I'm talking about a divide that is about eternity. When he says, those that reject you shake the dust off your sandals, when you walk away, that is a sharp statement. Maybe you've heard about this before. That was something Not not everybody, but commonly, Jewish people did something like that when they passed out of Gentile environments back into Jewish environments, to be sure that every little bit of the filth gets left there, because Gentile dirt is dirty. And not just in a soil sense. Gentile dirt is unclean. Those people over there are not the people of God. Are under the condemnation of God. And I don't want to be contaminated with that when the judgment falls. And Jesus tells his disciples to say that in Jewish towns and the doorsteps of Jewish homes. Who reject Jesus. You're like the Gentiles. You're not the people of God. You're under the judgment of God, and I don't want to be contaminated with this when the judgment falls on you, and it is coming. The first time somebody did that must have been enraging, and they're to do that everywhere. doesn't just say once. When you leave that town, the town sent you away. The town rejected you because of Jesus. Not because they don't have a place to stay, but you announce why you're there and they said, go away. Must have been enraging. And Jesus says, you have to do that. Because I love pissing people off. No. Why did I just swear? If that's a swear word. Why did I just say that? Because that's what we're thinking. And that's what that would look like. That's not why Jesus had to do that. He doesn't love irritating or angering or enraging people. up a horn. He loves making things clear. If they walked away, at how many times have we done this? I'm a Christian. Oh, that's good for you. Hey, great. Whatever you are is good for you too. Wonderful. And I walk away and leave it at that. If I walk away and leave it like that, what does this person think? Potato, potato. We're both fine. So I need to tell him, and not because I love hacking people off. I need to tell him that judgment is coming. Like Jesus said repeatedly at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd is not just life's going a little bit subpar for you, it could be better. You're headed to hell. And I'm not telling you that because I love making people angry or because I'm so boastful. No, I'm telling you that I hope from a heart of compassion. And you'd be able to tell by how you felt when you said it and how they heard it. If they saw tears in your eyes when you said it, they'd know. That's coming from someplace soft. If they saw, uh, they'd know. And you'd know. Why do you say it if you say it? I know why we avoid it because it's hard to say. Jesus tells them to do this so that they'll put it out there and be clear. We're talking about eternal destiny here. In fact, the last sentence is amazing. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That is amazing. Sodom and Gomorrah. Two cities famously judged for a host of sins, especially for the sin of practicing homosexual behavior. Practicing homosexual behavior. I've got to emphasize, practicing. I recently, preached through the book of Jude and, and as well as 2 Peter. And Sodom and Gomorrah came up there, and they were, and even still are, prime case studies of sin and judgment. God destroyed them with fire from heaven, and the ground continued to smolder for ages. A clear and vivid sign of the judgment of God. And shockingly, Jesus says it will go better for them on the day of judgment than it will for plain old ordinary Galilean villages that want nothing to do with Jesus. That's amazing. Practicing homosexuality, acting on it, not being tempted. You get very carefully distinguished this between the temptation towards same-sex attraction. We all, every single one of us, faces a host of temptations that arise in us, most of which we don't want and which we couldn't think about, but they come up in us, we don't know where they come from, and we have to fight them because the Bible says they're wrong. We're all in the same boat with that. To have same-sex attraction, same-sex temptation is just temptation, to act on it is sin, like to act on any other temptation. So I'm not talking about same-sex temptation, Sodom and Gomorrah is about same-sex acting, embracing it wholeheartedly, stepping into it, not fighting it, saying yes to it. And that's sin for sure, but rejecting Jesus is far greater sin because it's the root sin behind all sins and the sin ultimately that takes a person to the condemnation of hell. This is sobering and profoundly serious. Jesus wants to make clear, as he already said in the Sermon on the Mount, why it is the path that leads to destruction. Many walk it. And part of being a faithful laborer in the harvest is to let people know that. From compassion, not from compassion. We've got to be clear. And of course we'll recognize, I don't think everybody's going to like to hear that. Some It creates the opportunity for some to be alerted and to be warned and to be turned back. That's true. There is nothing whatsoever wrong with it. In fact, it is highly commendable and good that we tell people about eternal destiny. And that, in, for Many, many, many of us, that was a key part in making us consider this. It's really important. We have to talk about that. But we also know that that's going to stir up some anger and some people and some resistance. That's where the next week's passage goes, persecution. But as we look at this and and as you get ready to take off your sandals and shake off the dust, there's going to be like a, this is not going to go well moment in your mind. And what rises in us is that I don't, maybe I don't need to tell them that right now. Next time. Well, Jesus says this to us in a context of I'm the one empowering you, I'm the one speaking through you. And remember, blessed are you when people persecute you for my name's sake. Great is your reward in heaven. That's in the Sermon on the Mount also. I promise you, people will oppose you, yes, but I will receive you. People will take from you, yeah, for sure, but I will reward. Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Great is your reward there. We want to be faithful laborers in the harvest. It starts with pray for compassion And then it involves getting into the field and actually while in the field looking and praying and and hoping to actually labor to connect people to the king to show them who he is. Trusting him to provide for us and to cover us when it doesn't go well. Labor is in the harvest. Let me pray. Lord, would you help in a lot of ways. I'm preaching way over my head here because I fall so far short on this. Many of us probably do. But will you grow in us faithfulness and dependence? Will you grow in us compassion? Will you grow in us courage to say the hard things but to say them with tears in our eyes? Help, please, Lord. Sometimes we find it easy to speak when we're angry. Help us to speak when we're soft-hearted and compassionate. Move us towards people faithful to your name, please. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 943 0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah. 84121